Welcome to the Sale Street Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. And for more information about our church, visit salestreet.org. Good morning. Well, it's kind of been heavy so far, but you know what? Heavy's okay because God gave us all different types of emotions for all different types of things we go through in life. Amen. All right, today we're going to talk about God giving grace to the humble. Of course, in a few moments, we're going to go through James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Two weeks ago, Lucas preached through the first part of James chapter 3. We discovered that while humanity can tame all types of things, whether it be air travel, wireless communications, uh, wild animals, or what have you, there's one thing we cannot tame. And that would be the tongue. We have a really hard time of controlling what we should and should not say. Because God tells us in James, or rather James tells us um, with God's anointing, I should say, with the tongue we bless, at the same time we can curse, right? So we should take care not only in what we say to others, but how we say it. And just like a fig tree cannot produce olives, Neither should the mouth that blesses God curse our fellow man, because like us, they're made in God's image. And then last week, Tim completed James chapter 3. We were reminded of the difference between worldly wisdom and the wisdom that comes from God. As Christians, we're part of God's kingdom, and we work together for the betterment of that kingdom rather than our own selfish desires. At least that's what we're supposed to do. And just as every service member in the military knows their place, we know our place in God's kingdom by seeking after and practicing godly wisdom. So after giving us extensive admonitions on taming our tongue and using godly wisdom rather than worldly wisdom, James ends chapter 3 like this. And I'm going to read James chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first, first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you would think James would go into chapter 4 telling us just how great this world's going to be now that we know to use godly wisdom and we know to be careful of how we say things and what we say with it. Unfortunately, James lived in the real world with real people like us, like you and I, which means he's not done correcting us. And I say us because James is full of timeless wisdom, full of truths that you and I should carefully and prayerfully consider as we continue to go through this great book. And we should take that to heart. And that includes our need to humbly receive the grace and mercy of God, which is what we're going to talk about today. And so now we're going to read from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Okay, just wait a moment. And uh, we want to welcome our children today. This is Family Sunday, so we're glad that our volunteers are able to have this time together with us and that our children are here. So if you hear some 
squeals or moans or groans, you know, we're glad to have you here, and we're glad to have your kids, so don't let that bother you, okay? All right, James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I just want to pray again before we get started. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, it seems like our world is uh, chaotic, and that's because it is. Because it's filled with sinful people, and uh, God, you knew all this ahead of time, yet you chose to show your grace upon us, and you've allowed us to meet together to worship you, to lift you up, and to be admonished to uh, not only live godly lives, but to use those godly lives as examples and models of what the gospel can do in the life of a human being. And we just pray that you would help us to take this to heart and that we would uh, come away this day being encouraged uh, in living godly lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now let's look at James chapter 4, verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, so have you ever felt like there was a war going on in your heart or between your ears or in your mind? In other words, doing what God wants versus doing what your flesh wants. That is a constant battle that the Christian will face this side of heaven for their entire lives. Examples of this would be, on one hand, doing what God would have us do, well, on the other hand, some examples could be exposing our eyes and ears to sinful images and sounds, the siren call of sexual temptation and adultery, giving in to the fear-mongering tactics of the media, belittling your spouse or children or co-workers, or fill in the blank with whatever may be warring in your mind at this moment. And while... James was very adamant about this. He is not the only one in the New Testament that had something to say about this war in the mind. Paul talks to us about it in Romans 7, verses 21 to 24. Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So now going through that, we see James in verse 1 of chapter 4, and also Paul in Romans 7, chapter, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 24, are both talking to us about the dangers of unresolved conflict within our own hearts and minds. So... Do you know what happens 
when you have unresolved conflict? On one hand, you have what you should do, the godly thing to do. While on the other hand, you have what your flesh would want to do. And those two forces, if the conflict is not resolved, they are going to continue opposing each other until your life is left with a pile of destruction. And that is something we want to prevent. We don't want that to happen because that's the kind of things that can happen that result in some of the tragedies we already have prayed about this morning. And again, that is what you should do versus what you want to do. All right? So how do we deal with this war of the mind? Paul gives us the answer in the first part of Romans 7.25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ and his transformational power are the answer. However, we have to keep in mind that our sin nature is always going to want to war against what God would have us do. Because our sin nature always wants to serve self rather than God and the kingdom of God. And because James was a man of God, he was full of godly wisdom, and like Paul, he knew this to be a fact, and he's not done with us. So now we're going to go to the first part of verse 2 of James chapter 4. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now let's keep this in mind. James calls the believers in the congregation that he immediately wrote this letter to a bunch of quarreling, covetous murderers. This letter is written to a Christian audience scattered most likely because they were persecuted for their belief in Jesus Christ. So how can he be saying that about God's kingdom, about God's church, rather? He says this because he knows the condition of their hearts. He also knows their, and by extension, our, tendency toward hatred of our fellow man. And we know that someone that's a true believer is not going to murder a fellow human being, right? Because we know the value of human life. However... Let's look at John, excuse me, 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15. Verse 15 tells us, not some, not most, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So now we know that murder and hatred are akin to one another because when you hate someone, it's as if you want them to cease existing. So you might as well want to murder them because... That's what results from hatred uh, of a fellow human being. So having murder in your heart uh, is something that will not lead to eternal life. And that's what 1 John tells us. And remember, James is telling this to people that are part of the church. And then in the second part of verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So not only is James' audience not praying enough, when they do pray, they're not praying properly. So before we continue, I just want to do a brief recap. James reminds the believers that they, and by extension we, all have a war going in uh, our minds and our uh, hearts. Our desire to please and obey God versus our desire to please and uh, obey ourselves. 
He also relays that we, or they, hate and covet after others, which means we would prefer them to cease existing and then that their stuff would be signed over to us. And if that weren't bad enough, they or we don't ask for things in prayer regularly, and when we do, we're not doing it correctly. So James is showing his flock that they were so focused on self that they lost sight of God's will for each of them. Their selfish inward focus was evidenced by the state of their prayer lives or the lack thereof. So I'm not going to inquire about your prayer life, but I do want you to consider this. Uh, In a little while, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, so this is a great time to do a self-examination. So I want you to, to think about this. Do you pray regularly? And if you do, who is the focus of your prayer? Are you God-focused or are you self-focused? And here's another question to think about. Have you ever been taught to pray? Because that's something that we're pushing hard in this church. It's something that we want to do. We have a biblical prayer model for this church. It started in our elder meeting. Uh, Tom uh, is the one who brought this up when we first started over a year ago. And what we often do, or excuse me, what we always do when we meet is we have Bible study and prayer time together, and that takes much of, if not the bulk, of our meeting time together because we think it's that important. We're also trying to teach and model biblical prayer in several ways. First, of course, as I said, is our elder meetings. We're also teaching this every week in children's church. And then if you haven't been to family worship, on Wednesday nights we have a free meal, and then after that we have family worship and youth service. And on family worship, we're trying to teach our families, our children, and anyone else that wants to be with us how to worship God on a regular basis in the home. And that includes how to pray. All right, so normally I have you repeat things and uh, answer questions. I'm just going to do that once today. And that is going to be what the biblical prayer model is at this church. All right, so repeat this after me, please. Humiliation. Adoration. Supplication. One more time. Humiliation. Adoration. Supplication. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what that means. Humiliation is being humbled. When you think about your place in this universe, and then you reflect on the place that God has, he's not even in this universe. He is outside of it because he's the creator of it all. When you really remember that and reflect on where you are versus where God is, It helps you remember his place as Lord, ruler, and creator. And so humiliation is just humbling yourself before the power, the might, and the awe of our Lord and Savior. Adoration. That's when we adore God. We love him. And you know what? On our lowest day, and remember that the people that James was writing to were having a lot of bad days because they had been scattered for their beliefs in Christ. On our lowest day, he deserves our love. Because remember, he loved the wretched, the unlovable. Not because he had to, not because we asked him to, but because he chose to. And just for that alone, he deserves our love, our affection, and our adoration. Last would be supplication. Supplication is last. Supplication is when you ask God to supply a certain need. Okay? Well, when you're humbled and remember your place in God's kingdom and his place in your life... When you love him as he deserves, 
God is going to use that time to align your will and your wants with his will and his desires. And then at that time, you can ask God for whatever your need is. Because God will answer your prayers as your desires line up with his. Amen? All right, thank you. All right, so the best place to find biblical prayer models is in the Bible. So I'm going to read through a, first, excuse me, a few of those for you. First would be the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the version of that we're going to look at is Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. And this is Jesus uh, not actually praying, but giving a model of prayer to his believers, to his followers, to the disciples. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's starting off by worshiping God, remembering his place in the universe, and remembering where God's place ought to be in his life. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's asking God for his will, for his way, and for his desires to be done. Because God's will, God's ways, God's desires are more important than ours, right? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He finishes the prayer by asking God to supply a need. That need could be um, food. It could be something physical, spiritual, mental, emotional. Whatever you have need of to get through that day and follow God's will for your life. He also is asking for forgiveness of sin because we all need to do that every day because that's the only thing we're really good at is breaking God's moral law. And um, anyway, that's just one great example of humiliation, adoration, supplication. Another one that I'm going to go through is part of Psalm 51. Now remember, this psalm was written by David, and it was written after he got called out for not only uh, taking Bathsheba in an illicit relationship, but having her husband killed, okay? Listen to what David says. He's, he's not asking for a laundry list of wants and desires. He's not asking God to bless his kingdom or anything like that. He's humbled because of Nathan calling his sin out. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you look at that carefully, you will see that David has loved God. He's definitely been humbled. And he's also uh, asked God to supply his need, which is forgiveness of his sin. And lastly, we're going to look at John, the Gospel of John, verse 14 and 13, and then a few verses from John 15. John 14 and 13 reads like this. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What Jesus is telling us there is when your heart, when your will, when your mind align with God's will and desires for your life and for his kingdom and then you ask God to supply a need, God is going to answer that because whatever you're asking for is going to glorify the Father rather than yourself. And God loves to answer those types of prayers. Then we're going to go to John 15, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And what we learn in this is that God likes to answer the kind of prayers that do not give us uh, things that we desire selfishly, but things that glorify our Father, because He deserves that. Amen? Amen. So what's the purpose of prayer? Well, first, it can help us to focus on God, on His will, on His desires for our lives and for His kingdom. Second, it helps us to focus on others. And then lastly... With the right lens, we can focus on ourselves. With proper prayer, we, go mo- we grow more God-centered and less self-centered. Self-centered prayer is kind of like looking at a telescope in the wrong end. You know, when you look at a telescope, you can look at the night sky, you can see the craters on the moon, you can see stars more clearly, and there's all kind of other heavenly bodies you can see. But if you were to climb to the top of a telescope and look in the big lens, you're not going to see much because you're not using it properly. And it's the same with prayer. Self-centered prayer is not going to change your life. It's not going to help you focus more on God. And it's a waste of time. Because your life will be focused, excuse me, out of focus, blurry, and confusing. God-centered prayer changes our point of view and it enables us to more clearly see God working in our lives and our place in his universe. And God-centered prayer helps us to stay true to our first and highest love, which is God. Self-centered prayer takes us down a dangerous path, as can be seen in James 4, verse 5, which we're fixing to go over. James 4, verse 4 and 5, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So whenever the audience James is writing to, or we, try to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world, it's as if we're breaking the seventh commandment. Do you remember what the seventh commandment is? You shall not commit adultery. If you're one of the many people most likely in this room that have directly or indirectly been affected by adultery, you know the serious effects it can have on family, obviously on a marriage, also on relationships of various kinds. And if you know what that feels like, which it is horrible, it is evil, it is painful. It is something that we never want anyone to experience, but it happens unfortunately. If you knew what that feels like, you have just a little inkling about how God feels when we try to play both sides, when we try to stay in the church, but also try to do things that he would say was ungodly of us, when we don't try to win the battle of the war in our minds. So I want you to think about that for a moment. Because God is serious about our relationship with him. And while that's true, you might sometimes want to ask, what right does God have to be jealous for our love and affection? Well, there's a very good reason. James 1, 5 tells us he yearns, excuse me, 4, 5, I said that wrong. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And then Genesis 1, 26 also tells us, then God said, let us make man in our 
image after our likeness. You know what that means? Out of all the created things in the universe, there's only one type of being that is made in God's image. And God made them to be male and female, right? You and I are special in all of the creation because we bear God's image. God put something special in us. Therefore, he does have a right to be jealous over who we love and how we love because we're his creation. So James is talking to believers, people like you and I, while this feels super heavy, if we are quarreling covetous murderers, just like his audience, who don't know how to pray, then what chance do we have? And that's when we come to verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's something to be thankful for, amen? Amen. As I said earlier, the only thing that we do without fail is breaking God's moral law on a daily basis. And again, God's moral law is knowing the difference between right and the difference between wrong. You're born knowing that, and you're also born failing at that every day. So on our own, do we have any chance of success? No. Let's look at verse 6 again. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is getting what we do not deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And this is where the gospel is so important. It's so important that it should be at the forefront of the mind of every believer, whether they be a new believer or somebody that's been a part of God's kingdom for decades. Amen? Romans 5, 8 through 11 tells us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So this is the part of the sermon where the gospel comes in, and this should always be at the forefront of our minds and our hearts, because as I said, we break God's moral law every day. God can stand nothing less than perfection in his presence, because if he did, he wouldn't be God. And that means we're doomed, right? Because if you look at the Ten Commandments, for instance, you know that either in our hearts, our minds, or our intentions, we break the Ten Commandments, or some of them, every day. The penalty for breaking God's law is not jail, not a fine. The penalty is burning in hell, ever in the presence of God's wrath, separated from his love. But God allowed his son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our law-breaking. God sent his only son down to earth. He lived a perfect life, and then willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed on the cross Not just because he wanted to. Of course, it was a horrible, terrible thing on one hand, while on the other, it was a wonderful thing. God did that so that you and I could be made right with him. Our sin is wiped away, and even though we continue to sin throughout our lives on this earth, God has made us right in standing with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And according to Romans 10, if we believe in Jesus as God's son, and we believe him so much, to the point of obeying him, repenting of our sin, 
and doing all the other things we're supposed to do as Christians and believers, we will be spared the penalty of hell. All it takes is believing in Christ as Lord and Savior to the point of changing. We also are promised to one day live with God and all other believers in perfect bodies, in a perfectly remade universe where there won't be sin or death or anything like that. Won't that be wonderful? So Christian, are you losing the battle against your flesh to quarreling hatred or jealousy? Is your prayer life suffering or non-existent? Well, this is your opportunity to repent, to remember the gospel, and to humbly ask God for his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy. If there's anyone here that's a believer and you've never heard, excuse me, an unbeliever, you've never heard the gospel before, our prayer is that God would enable you to see your need for salvation from the penalty of hell. Because we want to worship in heaven with you one day. And if anyone wants to pray with us, uh, we're going to be here for you. And if you would rather discuss any of this privately, again, me or one of the other elders will be here for you. And so now I'm going to close in prayer. And then we're going to move on to uh, the Lord's Supper. And as I do, please ask God to help you examine your hearts, your minds, your attitudes, and your desires. Uh, and as I pray, if you do need prayer uh, with one of the elders, please come forward, and we'll be glad to pray with you. Lord, we know that it's been a heavy week with all kinds of bad news, but in spite of all that, God, we know that uh, the gospel is always the good news. It is always the greatest news to ever be heard by human ears because it is the only way that we can be saved from ourselves and saved from the penalty we deserve. And we know, God, that one day you're going to make all this earth over again. You're going to remake this universe and even our own hearts and minds so that there will be no more sin, there will be no more sadness. We'll, we'll not be hurting one another as we often do in this world. And Lord, if there be anybody here that is not a believer, we pray, God, that you would prick their hearts, that you would help them realize their need for a Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ, and that they would uh, come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to ask the deacons to begin passing out everything. And uh, please pass one to me also. While they do that, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 32. Thank you. And I won't read that till they start passing out, so I don't get ahead of myself. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 32. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And uh, if any of you have fat fingers like I do, and you, you don't have to call them that, that's what I call mine, just remember, you have to, two different tabs to pull up on this little cup. One is for the juice, and one is for the little wafer. So, Somebody told me they, I think during the holidays, they went and visited family elsewhere, and they had one of these and got it all over themselves <laughs> because they had trouble opening it. So that's why I was saying that. And uh, Thankfully, someone else there also had a mess on themselves, so he didn't feel so bad about that. But anyway... Now, if you've already got one, go ahead and take the wafer. Remember how a few moments ago we explained the gospel? Before Jesus even went on the cross, his body was broken and bloodied for our sins. His body was broken, so we break this wafer. In a few moments, we'll take that. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're not supposed to believe, actually, that this turns into Christ's body or blood as we take it. We're just supposed to be reminded of what he did for us, something so special. And the wine represents his blood that was spilled on the cross. And each time we take this, we're supposed to remember the sacrifice he made for you and I. And uh, so at this time, I ask that you self-examine. Please don't take this lightly and bring judgment upon yourself. And I'm going to pray one more time before we take of the Lord's Supper. Lord, we just thank you for bringing us here today and allowing us to celebrate this wonderful thing, the Lord's Supper. I pray, God, that everyone in here would be made right, made right with you and reconciled to you, God, if they're not already. I also pray, God, that if there be anything in any of us that we need to repent of or make right with a fellow human being, I pray that we would do that. And I pray, God, that you would, from this day forward, help us to follow you more closely and um, just to be someone that is able to share the gospel with others in our lives. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, so please take the bread. Please take of the cup or the wine or, well, grape juice in our instance. And, y'all, this has been a heavy service. There's a lot of stuff going on right now, but we should just worship God right now because, once again, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper and worship our Lord and Savior openly in this wonderful country we live in. So let's worship the Lord.